Welcome to Sierra Week Conversations, a new video and podcast series bringing you insights with impact into energy, economics, and a changing world in the COVID-19 era. I'm your host, Dan Jurgen. Today's episode is with, with Amin Nasser, who is the president and CEO of Saudi Aramco. Saudi Aramco is the world's largest oil company, and it recently became a public company. We'll be talking about operating in these challenging environments, about the oil market, the future of energy, and the nature, changing nature of work, and the changing generations in the uh, oil industry. So, Amin, let me uh, welcome you warmly to this Sirawee conversation. Greeting, Dan, and uh, to the audience. Uh, before beginning, I would like to express uh, our uh, solidarity with the people around the world who were in, have been impacted by COVID-19 and express also our uh, deep uh, uh, sorrow for the precious lives lost. Well, thank you very much on that. And I thought maybe actually we will start there, what this has meant for Saudi Aramco. When you did your IPO in December, you knew the world would be different. No one knew it would be this different. How has Saudi Aramco adjusted to uh, this working environment and these challenges? Well, thank you, Dan. Uh, there is not much change in that aspect, except that it is more formalized now. We have been working as, as if we are a listed company before. We had a one shareholder, uh, but we were giving the same rewards to our shareholders. We became a publicly listed company on December 11 last year. So through January, things were good and dandy. You know, uh, COVID-19 started impacting the business uh, from February going on. So ever since that time, we have been impacted by COVID-19. But in terms of uh, the way uh, we are doing business, not much change, except now we see uh, the results uh, and the sentiment in the market by looking at the share prices uh, every day. Uh, other than that, uh, more communication that we are doing now with analysts and more shareholders to deal with. Of course, what you didn't know and could anticipate was um, COVID-19. Saudi Aramco had two um, shall we say, advantages or conditions that put it in a different position than other companies. One, you dealt with MERS, which was an earlier epidemic and had experience of dealing with the pandemic, although on a lesser scale. And also your partners uh, in a big hospital with Johns Hopkins, one of the leading medical institutions in the world. How did those two things help you prepare or deal uh, with this um, pandemic? We definitely, you know, um, MERS, even though it has less an impact, as an impact compared to COVID-19, uh, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome that almost 2012, so we learned a lot of lessons during that time that helped us uh, with COVID-19, you know, but the JV with the John Hopkins, which is a leading medical provider, very well known globally in terms of uh, medical services and of course. the quality of service. Uh, we started that JV in 2013 and it put us in a very good position in terms of tackling uh, COVID-19 because the work between a corporation, you know, a JV and uh, a medical provider, an excellent medical provider, definitely had its 
value because pandemic is a sub-risk when we look at corporate risk for Saudi Aramco and our preparation and readiness started much earlier than everybody else. You know, when I look at what happened in hospitals in Europe and in the U.S. in terms of preparedness, you get surprised, you know, for us, preparing for COVID-19 started early on in February, working with John Hopkins and making sure that we had all the necessary supply available before that panic happened in March and April in terms of having enough supplies. Well, that really did, of course, and Johns Hopkins has been the leading source for tabulating uh, COVID cases. So they were on it very early. And so that helped you. How have you been working? Are people working from home? Uh, are they in the field? What's been what's been your approach? Well, the majority of our workforce is industrial workforce. So they, you know, with operation continuing on and, you know, uh, we were also at certain points at the maximum sustained capacity. So all of our fields and plants were uh, running, you know, smoothly with very high reliability during the pandemic, you know. Uh, uh, so only the office workers were more than 50% were working from home. But when it comes to field presence, we could not afford, you know, everybody was working, especially in remote areas and the offshore sites, our people. But we made sure, working with John Hopkins, that we had excellent protocol to make sure they remain healthy and safe. Uh, we were able to uh, manage the situ- situation very well, putting all the precautions necessarily to maintain their safety and health while uh, maintaining our uh, operational resilience uh, during uh, this time. Well, of course, you were already launched on a digitalization uh, effort, endeavor. Did this speed it up? Did this the digitalization change the way that you've operated in these last few months? Definitely. We benefited from having a, a chief digitalization officer and having an excellent, one of the best uh, IT infrastructure. Almost uh, we were availing more than 30,000 uh, remote workstations for our people to work from home. And this was done in, in no time. Uh, while at the same time, you know, when you access the network or the enterprise, there is a lot of issue with regard to cybersecurity. And, you know, we have a lot of uh, uh, hackers that uh, target energy companies. So we had to be making sure that we uh, are able to provide uh, the connectivity while protecting our uh, network from any hackers. And it worked very smoothly. It, it, um, it's seamless uh, when we have we've done it across and the work, uh, not only in terms of connectivity with the rest of the teams and the offices and the plants, but even in project management with our offices and projects that are being done globally. So our project management also uh, was able to conduct the business remotely uh, with, uh, with very smoothly, I would say. So, I mean, clearly experience had already several years ago emphasized uh, cybersecurity, the importance of cybersecurity for Saudi Aramco. So you were, again, something you were prepared for. Yeah, cybersecurity is very on top of our priority. And one of the things that will come out from uh, the pandemic and the lessons learned as we uh, look at it in the the days ahead is that 
there's a lot of talk about working from home and utilizing a network and remote uh, working, but at the same time, even though there is a lot of productivity uh, and savings by doing so, we need to also guard against uh, cybersecurity because the system needs to be really uh, protected very well during uh, these times with a lot of remote uh, people working. Of course, during this period, uh, Saudi Ramco operates. It's not only the world's largest uh, oil company, uh, but it's also in some ways the most flexible. And uh, the highest production you'd ever been was 11.4 million barrels a day. Kind of you're around, I think, around 9.7. You went to 12.3 million barrels a day and then down to, uh, I think, 7.5 million barrels a day. How do you do that? I mean, how do you how do you manage something on that scale in a matter of weeks and even days? The 12 million highlighted by you, Dan, is our maximum sustained capacity and the 300 is we used it from storage. So, yes, in, in April, we went to 12.3 million barrels per day. We did that in 20 days during a pandemic. So, so uh, how did you, how did you do it? <laughs> <laughs> I think the three components are very important. You need to look at your uh, subsurface, uh, the surface facilities, and then your export infrastructure, and making sure they are very reliable and tested for this. As you said, we never went to 11.4 only for a couple of days. So when we tested the whole system in 20 days to bring it from the 9 point something to the 12 million barrels and put the 300 from our storage facility, all of that you needed to make sure all your pumps, compressors, system, including your export facilities, working smoothly. So thanks to uh, the professionalism of the uh, and the commitment of the men and women from Saudi Aramco and the backing from their families, by the way, which was very important and critical because, as I said, they did it during pandemic, you know, where they are working in remote fields. We had to use all of our workforce working full time to put the maximum sustained capacity and making sure we maintain the highest reliability ever, which is more than 99 percent. And we were proudly, you know, uh, able to achieve that in, in April so it is having, you know, the, the right talent, the right workforce and the reliable system and the operational excellence. And it's very important and critical. And when we needed it, uh, you put it on, you are rest assured and confident that you can achieve it. Right. Then you had to turn around and go down to, I think, seven and a half million barrels a day. Was that as hard as going up to? 12 million barrels a day? No, I, I would say it's more it's more difficult to go up than down because usually going down is uh, you would need less compressor, less mumps, less wells to be on and all of that. So it, it, it's really, it's not uh, as intensive when it comes to operation like uh, going up to, uh, you need to deal of course with the issues of lower gas and all of these things, lower ethane, lower products. And, and we, we, we have ways to deal with that. But uh, I think going up and making sure all the facilities are uh, on operation with the highest reliability possible, I think that is more, uh, more work, let me put it that way. One way you were prepared for this overall crisis was you have redundancy or your supply chains uh, were very robust in terms of preparation. And might say something about your 
your, the philosophy towards uh, supply chains. As you know, Dan, you know, supply chains is usually long and uh, spread, you know, distributed globally. It's like any other uh, industry uh, to have the optimum level of inventory is very important and making sure that you have the right inventory is very important and critical. And we have seen a lot of plants and factories and suppliers that support Saudi Aramco from Europe and including China and other places, they had to shut down because of the lockdown. And that impacted us for a while, but because of the optimum level of inventory that we have, one, and second, because of our in-kingdom total value add, which is our local content. We are at 56%. So a lot of uh, things are being manufactured in the kingdom. It helped us a lot. It helped us also during the crisis when we had the attacks on Khuris and Abgeek without having uh, the optimum level of inventory and uh, the local content at the high level, we would not be able to restore these facilities that quickly. So this further uh, I think the COVID-19 further confirmed that, you know, having your supply chain closer to you is very important. You know, globalization when it comes to supply chain is 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 definitely uh, successful and worked. But, you know, we are seeing uh, because of either uh, the critical nature of the incident that we had in Abgay Kunkhreis or the lockdown that happened in different countries, having it to closer to the end use is uh, very important these days. You mentioned Abcake and Koreas, uh, that uh, disruption when those facilities were attacked uh, last, uh, I guess it's last September. Uh, and it was seen, it was like the biggest disruption in supply. And I think the world was quite surprised and reassured by the speed with which you were able to restore those facilities. I mean, maybe you could say a word about how you were able to do that because it was such a shock when it happened. You know, it was really a shock in terms of, you know, the level of uh, destructions. But, you know, uh, I think uh, we relied a lot in our workforce to restore these facilities. We have very experienced and talented workforce that worked around the clock. Our supply chain was optimum uh, and we had all the needed uh, spare parts and equipments to put the facilities back on. And also our partners in Kingdom and around the world helped a lot for us to restore these facilities. Uh, so everything worked together, I think, from a supply chain, from the having the right uh, a trained and experienced workforce that knew what needs to be done during uh, a crisis of this nature. And also the business continuity, the preparedness, what needs to be done after you damage a tank or you have an accident of this nature without having these business continuity plans ready, drilled beforehand so that when you end up with an incident like this, you know, you go ex uh, immediately and tackle it uh, with a speed, without having all of these business continuity plans ready and these scenarios for damage here or a catastrophic failure of uh, these tanks or plants and all of that, it helped us a lot. And of course, having the right drills in terms of, you know, putting fires and all of these things. I imagine that during that, though, you and your colleagues did not get much sleep during those days. 
you know, it was a quite a difficult time for everybody around Saudi Aramco uh, to tackle. And it was a challenge. We promised to bring the facility in, in days rather than months. And we, uh, through uh, the talented uh, men and women of Saudi Aramco, were able to bring these facilities on in, um, in days instead of months successfully, reliably. And we met our uh, no supplies to our international customers were interrupted even during attacks. So all of this needed a network of uh, of plans, uh, of talents, of experience to to manage the situation. Well, it was a you know tremendous, and I think it was very reassuring to the global economy that you were able to the, the speed with which you recovered. Let me ask you another question related to operations, different kind of operations, which is that Saudi Aramco has looked at uh, developing unconventional uh, shale, uh, gas, oil. Uh, how is that uh, uh, initiative going? The program is very successful in terms of, you know, the shales types that we are identifying. There are some similarities with what's available in the U.S. A good thing, you know, our basin, especially, for example, the Jafura and others, is very rich with liquids. So that definitely will help when it comes to the economics. The learning, the learning curve was very quick in terms of, you know, reaching a point where the cost is close of how much it cost in the U.S. And that was very important. And what was put as a goal and a target for our teams working on the unconventional gas, we had to change our operation to something similar to the U.S. So we put the project management, the operation, the explorer, everybody in one organization. And unconventional gas was done different than what we do other things in Saudi Aramco because we learned from the U.S. experience, speed, efficiency, matters uh, when it comes to unconventional. So it has to work like a, a factory with a lot of you know, discipline and a lot of improvement and in innovation in terms of cutting costs in order to achieve the goal. And the team, when we empowered them and we gave them all the resources to do everything within that organization without having to go to other businesses, it's like a company by its own, worked very well for Saudi Aramco. So culturally, it's, it's, it's a change in culture. Of course, because this is not the way we operate. We operate based on different businesses as you know others. And while in this situation, from the beginning, we decided that learning from the U.S. experience, it's only going to work if they have all the resources in one organization. Right. Because the accountability is going to be there. And the target was given to them is that they need to match in terms of cost and efficiency what's happening in the U.S. And of course, we used uh, the same partners and service companies that are being working in the U.S. like the Schlumberger, the Halliburton, the Bakers, and uh, Weatherford and others that. And they worked with us in terms of, you know, uh, uh, bringing the experience and uh, the know-how to uh, do the same here. Another way, of course, the organization's changed is just uh, very recently the uh, merger with Sabic, petrochemical company. <laughs> we acquired 70% stake in Sabic. Sabic is, is definitely a global and a leading company when it comes to petrochemical. Uh, 
our uh, aspiration from the beginning when we started our uh, uh, strategy uh, plans, uh, we decided that we need to be a leading in not only uh, as a leading energy and petrochemical company. And as you know, we have leading position when it comes to upstream and refining, and we needed to integrate further uh, our refinery with petrochemicals. In addition, we are looking at crude to chemicals and all of these. And we could not do all of these aspirations in terms of adding value, extracting more value from our barrels without a big acquisition. SABIC was ideal. It's a leading company globally. It's run based on uh, uh, business class when it comes to operations. It works in more than 50 uh, countries, We there's a lot of synergy with Saudi Aramco. We operate also in similar markets. So uh, there's a lot of value that can be extracted by uh, acquiring a uh, significant position in Sabic. So Sabic became part of the Aramco family of companies and working together, I am sure we can achieve our goals of uh, adding value to our shareholders, both shareholders and Sabic and Saudi Aramco by maximizing, you know, our uh, turning our feedstock to petrochemical and adding value. You know, crude chemical, as I said, is, uh, is very important for Aramco and we have a lot of uh, technologies that we are looking at and we'll be working with our partner Sabic now in terms of uh, shifting more of our barrels to petrochemicals in the long run. Right. Um, in terms of the future, of course, something that uh, one has observed is that Saudi Aramco puts a lot of focus on uh, culture, particularly in terms of the, should we say, the next generation, the development of young people. As I understand, about half of your workforce now is under the age of 35. Um, is there a cultural? Is there a cultural difference? Is there a different? viewpoint towards work or towards digital skills uh, that you see in the generationally? I, I think we've seen it now during this crisis, you know, and we had to shift to uh, um, remote working and uh, it helped, you know, when the young uh, generation, when it comes to, you know, IT, uh, SAFI, they, they know it all, you know, they are great in terms of, you know, capturing all of these new technologies that are coming and the company is moving in that, that, that direction in terms of digitalization. Uh, as I said, we put the chief uh, digitalization officer in Saudi Aramco for some time now and helping us also to achieve more. So Saudi Aramco young uh, workforce is definitely a strength uh, for the company. Don't forget also, we uh, take them from high school and we train them. A lot of our industrial workforce, we hire them from high school and put them through our training centers. So they start at maybe some of them 17, 18 years old, and then they continue for the long term. So this is a source of a strength for the company going forward, especially with a lot of things uh, in terms of artificial intelligence, Internet of Things, Fourth Industrial Revolution, and all of this machine learning. And this is where the company is heading, and that new young uh, workforce will help us a lot to achieve our goals. So does that, they come to you at 17 or 18 after high school and you train them, do they then go to university and come back to you, or do they, no, do they have, train you in the company? 
We have two two type, you know, the the one that goes industrial, what they call the apprentice program, which we take the high school and we train them to run uh, operation and maintenance of our plants. And then we have another program, which is for uh, university. We take them from high school and we send them for uh, either a bachelor degree or a master both and PhD. So today, for example, if you look at it, We have in different universities around the globe, mainly in the U.S., around 2000. When the crisis happened, we had to bring them back uh, to the kingdom, which was uh, a lot of work. The government helped a lot uh, in this exercise, and uh, we were able to successfully bring a lot of our graduates. So we do have the two programs. One is the apprentice for the industrial workforce, and one for the... Uh, bachelor degree and higher graduate degrees and all of that. So, I mean, we've been talking a lot about Saudi Aramco. Now, let me turn and talk about sort of your your view of the the future, the nearer term future and the farther term future. Uh, Nearer term, uh, what's your feeling? Do you have a, a sense of or what you're planning or thinking about in terms of how the oil market evolves the rest of this year, next year in terms of demand? The worst is behind us. That's, you know, we went from minus 40 to plus $40 right. with WTI. So I think the worst is behind us. Uh, we've seen uh, in April, we were looking at a demand of about 75, 80 million barrels with significant supply at that time. And then uh, currently you're looking at almost uh, close to 90 million barrels. So I'm very optimistic about the second half of uh, this year. We see it in China today. If you look at China today, it's almost at 90%. In gasoline, it's around 95% in China. So gasoline and diesel is picking up to pre-COVID level. Uh, Jet fuel is still lagging in terms of less air travel and all of that. More countries will start opening up. So we see that reflected uh, on the demand uh, on the crude. Uh, so we are optimistic about the second half. There are forecasts, different forecasts, looking at between 95 and 97 million barrels by year. And so it all, all depends about whether there will be a second wave right. of coronavirus or not. But I am also not as concerned about second wave because I think we are much better prepared now. All countries, all uh, medical establishment around the world are much better prepared. We learned a lot during the first wave. If we look out longer term or maybe the two most used words these days are energy transition. Uh, how does Saudi Aramco see its role and see the en- what's called the energy transition? I think the the focus even before COVID-19 and uh, about climate change and sustainability was one of the highest priority, at least for Saudi Aramco and the rest of the, I'm sure, energy companies, because that is important. And we are working on it individually and collectively through the oil and gas climate initiative with our partners. That focus will continue to be there in terms of even uh, after COVID-19, because climate change is important and critical. Um, and we need to do something to reduce our carbon footprint. There's a lot of things that's ongoing right now. I still uh, believe 
that oil and gas will continue to be uh, strongly part of the energy mix for over the long term. However, it's going to be cleaner because we are working to make sure that we are reducing our carbon footprint. And I'm sure, Dan, you are aware that we have a leading position when it comes to our carbon emission in terms of our carbon intensity in the upstream 10 kilogram uh, of CO2 per barrel oil equivalent and methane intensity of 0.06. That leading position didn't come all of a sudden. This is because of our focus since inception in reducing emissions and uh, putting the right investment and using the right technologies and all of that. That focus will continue with us. Because it is very important. And I think COVID-19 highlighted that the importance of sustainability and climate change and the focus need to continue to be there. Well, let me ask you then as a last question. Uh, I mean, there's Saudi Aramco has a big commitment to technology. And maybe just say a word about the areas that you find, kind of the frontier areas that, that you all are focused on and, uh, and that you're excited about. Thank you, Dan. I, yeah, technology is very important. You know, we today uh, we have uh, 12 centers, nine centers outside uh, the kingdom, and three centers in the kingdom in Europe, in Asia, and the U.S. Actually, three centers in the U.S. We recently opened a center uh, last year in Russia. So these centers are very important because they are in an important hubs where there are a lot of talents and interactions with scientists and. Uh, very important for us. The focus for us is climate change, as I said, is a priority. If you see it in a lot of our centers, in addition, of course, to discovery and recovery and improving our uh, cost and all of that. But climate change, carbon capture and sequestration, turning CO2 to useful uh, products, the use of hydrogen from crude oil or from uh, gas, ultra clean engine fuel uh, systems, Non-metallic, this is a focus area for us because not only in pipes, we are looking at non-metallics for construction. So that will also uh, find different use for our hydrocarbon at the same time reduce our carbon footprint significantly. This is a huge focus area. Crude to chemical. Chemical, you know, that's part of the, our strategy in acquiring SABIC, you know, uh, the highest sector in terms of use of oil demand uh, up to 2040 is chemical. So uh, crude to chemical is something that is important and critical, and we are a lot of patents. And and you can sure. see that reflected in the number of patents on Saudi Aramco. Last year, we had 500, I think, and 30-something patents. We have the leading position when it comes to the number of patents globally because it is important and a focus area. But climate change and finding, reducing carbon footprints and identifying new usage for oil in terms of either non-metallic and others is a focus area for Saudi Aramco going forward. By non-metallic, non you mean, when you say utilize our, you, 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 For example, most of the pipes that we use today in Saudi Aramco, the pipelines, we're using carbon. It, right. uh, initial cost is a little bit higher, but in terms of maintenance uh, and operation costs is, uh, in a net present value, a life cycle, you are much better off utilizing carbon because it would cut your cost significantly going forward. So if you look at it, the net present value is much better. Where are you with uh, crude oil to chemicals? Is, are we halfway there or are we there? Or 
We are doing, as I said, we are piloting right now. It is very important, you know, technologies. We do have conventional technologies that can convert up to 40, 45% of, uh, and this is uh, tested and all of that, but we are looking at technologies up to 70%. We tested it in the labs now and we did a small pilot. It works very well. Now we need to do a much bigger pilot. Uh, so that we uh, ensure that it is working successfully and at the same time to reduce the cost. But I have no doubt this technology is going to work and will convert more of our barrels to chemical at a reduced cost. Well, I mean, thank you very much for sharing your 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 discussion and your views about uh, how Saudi Aramco has dealt with uh, the immediate challenges of, uh, of the of the crisis uh, in terms of uh, managing the scale of the industry uh, in terms of uh, development of your workforce and, of course, technology, climate change, and emissions. So let me thank you very much for joining us for this Sierra Week conversation. Thank you, Dan, and thank you for the opportunity. It's always good to talk to you, even though it's remotely. Hopefully, right. we'll see each other Thanks soon. again for tuning in to another Sierra Week conversation presented by IHS Market. For the complete video series and previous episodes, visit us online at SierraWeek.com.